Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls Media Roundtable. We are dealing with internet issues today, so I apologize in advance if things sound a bit off or if we cut out. January 22nd, this Monday, marks the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which legalized the right to an abortion in the United States. The ultra-conservatives on the Supreme Court ended that right by overturning Roe in June 2022. Abortion is now banned in 15 states and heavily restricted in another seven. In those 15 states, criminal penalties for patients and providers range from less than a year to potential life in prison. Nearly one in five patients are now traveling out of state for care, according to the Guttmacher Institute. This has led to lawsuits in states like Texas, filed by women who say the ban puts their lives at risk. A recent case in Texas, supported by Republicans, says there are absolutely no exceptions, even if the mother's life is at risk. Cases before the Supreme Court risk eroding abortion access even further. One case could make it more difficult to access the abortion pill mifepristone, which accounts for 54% of all abortions. Another case will determine whether hospital emergency rooms will still be required to provide abortions in urgent situations. The the UN says in the past 30 years, nearly 60 countries have liberalized their abortion laws, while only four have regressed. The United States is one of them. Anti-abortion activists will be taking to the streets this weekend to call for bans in all 50 states. The New York Times reports that nearly 36 House Republicans who supported a federal ban in Congress last year have yet to sign on this year. And that is because when extreme bans and restrictions go to voters, they vote to protect reproductive rights. So how are major media reporting on this issue now that we are seeing the effects of abortion bans and restrictions across the country. Amanda Becker is Washington correspondent for the 19th, an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender politics and policy. Amanda Becker is out with many important pieces, including one about the dark money flowing to groups trying to limit medication abortion. The Federalist Society's Leonard Leo is again at the center. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jody Jacobson is Executive Director of Healthcare Act Across Borders, which works to increase access to abortion, gender-affirming care, and other forms of banned care using shield laws, telemedicine, and other means of expanding care. Jody Jacobson is former president and editor-in-chief of the reproductive and sexual health news site, rewire.news. Hi, Jody. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hey, Rose. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we like to start off our media roundtable by talking about a piece of reporting that that really stood out. So, Amanda, let's start off with you. What piece of reporting caught your attention this week? So I'm actually going to highlight one of my coworkers' stories, um, Grace Panetta. Um, she wrote about how Missouri um, might become the latest state to have an affirmative, um, which, and by that I mean protective, um, ballot measure related to abortion on the on the ballot this November. 
um, activists within the state are trying to get that ready. Um, and so, you know, we have kind of a constant uh, uh, influx of abortion rights related news right now. And so articles like that are really helpful to me. Um, and also at the 19th, we try and keep um, lists and maps going so people can help keep track. But that was published just a couple of days ago. Um, her name is Grace Panetta, who wrote the story. And it is about Missouri becoming potentially the latest state to try and protect abortion by getting it onto the ballot. Can you tell us more about that, Amanda? Because we know that what is happening in states across the country is is so important. I mean, we, unfortunately, we have a patchwork of laws now, but this is such an important issue. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of last year, going into this year, there were, let me count here. I have them in front of me. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven states that were looking like they would get measures onto the ballot this November. Now, a lot of the signature collection deadlines are not until July. Um, so they still have quite a bit of time to get the signatures that they need in the states that they haven't. But we're talking about everything from states where it is fully banned. Um, to states where it is fully legal. So Nevada, for example, right now is, is an example of a state where in the 90s, actually, voters approved abortion access. Um, they passed legislation. Actually, voters did directly. Now they're trying to actually add it to their constitution. Then you have um, states like Florida. Activists in Florida are trying to get an affirmative measure on the ballot. Um, Arizona, which is the site of one of the largest marches tomorrow, I think, commemorating abortion rights in Roe v. Wade. Um, they right now have a Democratic governor, Democratic uh, attorney general, um, but they have a 15-week ban in place and they have a very far-right state legislature that's trying to pass more laws. If, you know, power shifts on a political basis at the at the top level in that state, um, Arizona could turn into a state where abortion access was farther restricted beyond 15 weeks. So they're trying to get an affirmative measure onto the ballot there as well. All right. Well, thank you for bringing all of these issues to our attention. And we have that piece by your colleague at the 19th on our website, yourcallradio.org. That is Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th. It's a great website. If you haven't checked them out, they do really important reporting. Jody Jacobson is executive director of Healthcare Across Borders. Jody, what did you see this week that stood out for you? Um, well, I started reading a piece by, and I have admittedly didn't get to finish it because I've been a little bit um, busy traveling, but there's a piece in the New Yorker by Maura Donegan uh, reviewing books about Madame Rostelli. And I think looking back at some of the historical nature of abortion care and abortion rights and sort of where we're at now and how things have changed and how they have not is really important. And she reviews two recent books on Rostelli that I think are an important read. Um, so I'm going to go back and finish that piece. Um, but I uh, would recommend looking at that piece in the New Yorker by Mora. And what is Rostelli? Um, Madame Rostelli was one of the sort of prominent abortion providers in New York state when abortion was illegal. Uh -huh. And um, became very well known as sort of the place to go for wealthier women to have an abortion. Mm. Wow, those sound like great pieces. And maybe we'll try to get the authors on the show. Thank you for that, Jody. I, I want to ask both of you just a general question about media coverage. I mean, we've been covering these issues for years. And so many of the reporters who've come on, the reporters who are doing really good work, 
have said that the major media really dropped the ball on this issue because now that abortion has been overturned by the Supreme Court, the legal right to an abortion has been overturned. Uh, we're just seeing the most horrendous stories about, you know, a 13 year old in Mississippi who was forced to have a child, a 13 year old. I remember some people said, I didn't know a 13 year old could get pregnant. And then we're hearing stories about so many women who wanted their children, but there's some sort of issue, a fetal anomaly. And the state of Texas, for example, is basically saying your life is at risk, but you have you cannot have an abortion unless you leave the state. So there are stories after stories that are coming out. Jody, I just wonder, you've been at this for a long time. Now that we are seeing the effects of these bans and restrictions, what are your thoughts about how the major media are covering this issue? So I have a few thoughts. One is that, and you know, and as as you all know, Rose. I think the media failed just horribly for so many years on reporting on abortion care. One, because of its both sides coverage of care, the adoption of misleading language and um, unfact, you know, non-factual terms and, and in, insinuations about care and the failure to challenge those terms. All of that to me led to, um, and also really bad polling, the coverage of really bad, very superficial polling as though it meant something, which now we see it doesn't mean much at all, but we always knew that. And there was never really any incisive coverage digging into that polling and seeing why it would not mean anything. But when it really mattered in places like South Dakota, for example, uh, you know, 15 years ago or in Mississippi, 12 years ago, when people were faced with abortion bans, they roundly were defeated because people did not want them, even though those states were called extremely conservative, very red, blah, blah, blah. So I think that we have missed the abortion story for a very long time. And I think we're still missing the abortion story that needs to be told. And part of that is even, you know, inherent in some of the reporting by groups that are trying to do their best at, at abortion coverage. And this is, you know, no, um, no diss to the 19th or any other group. But I think, you know, for example, when we're looking at Missouri, let's say for the question about an abortion referendum, nobody's really asking why are we having these referenda that talk about limits at all? Why? At a time when people are really clear that they do not want the government involved in abortion care limitations. And yet we're running referenda that institute limitations that are effectively either re-litigating Roe v. Wade, which was problematic on its own, or putting in other restrictions that are not at all scientifically or medically accurate and don't ensure that people get care. And there's a story behind here that needs to be told. One, there are some groups that provide abortion care that don't care about those restrictions because they don't provide later abortion care. So it doesn't affect them, but it affects people. Two, there are some funders that are pushing for these, um, uh, you know, restrictions and we need reporting on those. Why are they pushing for those restrictions when we should not be pushing for restrictions? So I think that we're still failing. We're still taking at face value the people with the most investment in certain kinds of abortion care that they 
are doing the work that needs to be done without raising the question of why they're doing that work that way. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what would you add? What are your thoughts on major media media coverage of abortion? I mean, for starters, uh, issues like this that have not, that have been undercovered or, um, not covered in a, in a holistic way or one of the reasons the 19th exists. I mean, we're a pretty new newsroom. We formed in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Um, and one of the reasons why was the, the founder um, and CEO, Emily Ramshaw, was watching kind of how the mainstream media covered the 2016 election when we had a woman at the top of, the, of a ticket for a major party for the first time and thought, we can do better. Um, so she formed the 19th ahead of 2020. And that just happened to coincide, of course, with the culmination of, you know, a 50 year onslaught on row. Um, I remember going to a meeting with some lawmakers in between the leak and the decision and Dobbs coming down. And they had invited a bunch of reporters who cover politics and who cover other issues and the other reporters, and I'm talking, and I, you know, I can't out anyone specifically, but these are from major newspapers, major television networks, were saying even after the leak, stories they were writing about this would like get bumped off the homepage after a couple minutes because editors thought other stories were more compelling. And this wow. just really speaks to a concentration of, you know, one or two perspective perspectives at kind of the top of the food chain within newsrooms and within media. Um, and 19, the 19th is trying to, to disrupt that because Jody is absolutely right. We have these things happening, but why are they happening? Who is doing it? You know, mm-hmm. what is their ultimate end goal? And um, I actually just uh, finished a, a book. I'm going through uh, edits on it right now and fact checking that'll be out in September. That's telling the story of the first year after Roe, but to after Roe fell, rather. Um, but to do that, I'm having to go back all the way to reconstruction in, in some cases, depending on the geographic setting, to explain kind of the forces at work shaping these laws and what that reveals potentially about their endgame. Wow. You have to wonder, Amanda, who are these editors and what is their thinking behind these decisions? I mean, are we talking about wanting clicks because we know that the media is in dire straits right now because of the economic model. I mean, we just read that the LA Times is 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 going to lay off so many more journalists. The LA Times is on strike asking people not to go to the site, a very important paper. So what what are your thoughts about the reasoning behind editors taking these stories off the front page? I mean, I don't know because I don't work in those newsrooms. Um I I I don't work there for a reason. Um, and I think that's changed a little bit um, after Roe was overturned. But for example, um, even trying to sell a book or something before Roe was actually overturned, um, for people who were not tracking this closely, but you know were otherwise well-educated people about news and current events and what's going on in this country, um, I encountered a lot of skepticism from people saying like, you know, is it really going to be overturned? And it was like, yeah, anyone who listened to that oral argument, the December, you know, prior to the decision knew that best case scenario Roe would be incredibly weakened, but that it would likely be gone. Um, And I think it was just people kind of asleep at the wheel, not understanding um, 
fully what was happening in the country, not understanding the forces at work, and really not understanding who their audience is and who their readers are. And that, you know, this is a an issue that directly impacts more than half of their readers, and I would say impacts everyone in like a very, uh, you know, real way day to day. Right. Jody. I'm sure you have something to add, but I just want to add to this question. Uh, Politico looked at almost 16,000 local newspaper articles that mention abortion published in states where it's banned or restricted. And during the week in June 2022 of the Dobbs decision, there was an equal amount of political and health coverage of abortion, but they have found that the politics has dominated ever since. So if you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so I, I cover politics. That's what I cover for the 19th. We have a healthcare reporter, Shafali Luthra. So she often will be writing about kind of direct access and how people are accessing. And I'm writing more about the forces at work shaping the policies. You know, people like Leo, Leonard Leo, who I'm sure we'll get to that you mentioned in the intro. Um, you know, this isn't all happening in a vacuum. The same groups Groups, you know, there's a group based in Arizona that's funding some of this stuff around the country. If you start tracing all of them, they're all people who have been working towards this together for, you know, more than 20, 25 years in some cases, Mm -hmm. the actual individuals. Um, And so, you know, Alliance Defending Freedom is the group I was referring to out in Arizona. And in some cases, um, groups will, for example, they will um, help uh, anti-abortion lawmakers write the laws. They will then you know, fund defending those laws when they were challenged. They will fund offensive laws against protecting access that they don't like. Um, While, you know, they're, you know, even weighing in on who gets to be on the court. And so we can talk more about that when we talk about Leonard Leo. But, you know, this is a, a universe that, if you're keeping track of it, is very overlapping. It's networked. Um, these are not all ha- happening in a vacuum, and it's really a shame that we haven't gotten kind of the overall national perspective leading up to this that we needed to fully understand what was going on. Mm, such important points. Uh, Jody. what would, would you add in terms of the issues that Amanda raised and then also the importance of following the money? As she said, this is not just happening in a vacuum. There are millions of dollars behind the movement to overturn Roe and then ensure that abortion is banned in all 50 states. Absolutely. I mean, we know that, you know, this has been happening since literally since the 70s and and the late 60s, that this has been a plan underway for a long time, that the money has been coming into this, that this is a, um, you know, was a rallying issue for the creation of the far right in this country. And that it's, part and parcel of many other issues that we see still today, part and parcel of the fears about, you know, a um, a, a majority of color population in the country, the fears about immigration, you know, the, um, the entire landscape of issues are all tied together. This is not about some pro-life thing where we really care about babies because if we cared about babies, we'd do a lot more to keep them alive and make sure that they had a healthy food and nutrition and health care, which we don't. Um, What it is about is ensuring that more white people have babies and more low-income people are stuck having babies so that there are more workers and 
you know, and where there aren't enough workers, we make sure that kids are now um, laborers in ways that they used to be, and we outlawed. And the money behind this is very, very smart because they play on certain kinds of language and certain kinds of emotions. Um, and the problem with the press is that instead of digging underneath and reporting what's actually going on, they report the superficial and the surface and they take at face value the idea that, for example, well, you know, they're pro-life. And this has been the problem from the beginning. It's been a frustration for me the entire 30 years I've worked on these issues. And it also was the same in the international sphere when I worked on abortion and reproductive health globally. The same bad reporting, the same misguided reporting. And it's also very racially weighted reporting because right now there are, there's no question that communities of color are, are deeply affected by these bans. And yet most of the reporting is about the problems white women are facing accessing abortion. Not all of it, but most of it. And, you know, when you see, for example, the very dire consequences women were put into in the cases in Texas, those are very dire consequences. But right. there are women of color in Texas um, where the maternal mortality rate has increased uh, that are equally being put in those in those same positions. And I was really shocked, for example, to see that there were absolutely no um, plaintiffs or other people included in those cases to be able to show that this is not just an issue for white women. This is critically mm -hmm. an issue for people of color as well, um, and more so because they have fewer resources, less access to health care in the beginning, and less political capital. Um, right now, I'm working with doctors across the country who are using shield laws to provide abortion pills via telemedicine and into banned states. And the, by and large, the farthest, and then, you know, many of these docs are also providing abortion pills in non-banned states, but by and large, the um, number of requests they're getting are from people in banned states and the number of people who are requesting those services from them is rising rapidly and many of them don't have any money to pay for those for those pills. Uh, many of these docs are basically doing their own philanthropy to get those pills out there. So um, it's there's a lot happening right now that's both underreported and underunderstood. Um, that's challenging the models of healthcare we have um, that we're not really actually putting on the front burner. For example, it's far less costly and far less dangerous for someone in Texas to get abortion pills by mail from a doctor in California working under a shield law than it is for that person to have to travel to California to get that abortion if they so choose, because it's, it's probably about $1,950 less expensive. And it also doesn't expose them as many places as it does for them to manage an abortion at home if they're given proper guidance and they want to do that. Again, it's their choice. But um, we have a lot of things in the system that are happening that are not being um, either reported on or understood clearly. Um, and there's a lot of tension in the system about, you know, who's 
kind of models of care will survive and whether or not those models of care are the right models of care. So I think there's so much going on here that we're still sort of reporting from the same point of view of clinic-based models and specific groups in leadership when, in fact, there's a sea change kind of right underneath our feet and we're not really tracking it very closely. I just want to mention some people may have done a double take when you talked about young workers and what is happening to young people in this country. We have not done a show about this yet, but we will. Republicans are loosening child labor laws, and there have been stories about children being hurt on the job, working in pretty dangerous jobs. And so we will definitely do a show about that soon. Jody Jacobson is executive director of Healthcare Across Borders and former editor-in-chief of Rewire.News. Amanda Becker is Washington correspondent for the 19th. We have just a few minutes left, but... Amanda, we want to talk about your very important piece about Leonard Leo, co-chair of the Federalist Society. He is the man who's remade the U.S. legal system. You have an important piece about the vast web of entities linked to Leonard Leo that work to promote his conservative Christian worldview, weakening the Voting Rights Act, promoting publicly funded religious schools, and now restricting access to medication abortion. So Accountable.us is a great organization that shines a light on special interests that wield power in D.C., and they closely follow Leonard Leo. They gave you some of the tax filings to examine entities connected to Leo and the role that they're playing to challenge medication abortion. You also reviewed government records and media reports. And I have to say, Amanda, what you found was head-spinning So there's so many organizations involved in all this. I'm sure many of our listeners have never heard of them. Can you just give us an overview of what you found? Yeah, so I'll try and do this in the clearest way possible um, that isn't a 2,000-word story. So basically, there was a a lawsuit brought by... So four to five months after Roe v. Wade er, was overturned in the Dobbs case, a group was registered in Amarillo, Texas, and the location becomes important in a minute the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. That is an umbrella group of a lot of religious-affiliated medical organizations, um, some of which espouse and support some pretty anti-LGBTQ policies and things like that. Um, Now, Leo, a few years back, um, got put in charge of this organization called the Marble Freedom Trust with a $1.6 billion bequest from an electronics mogul um at the time it was kind of like he he you know the news reports that he would he would be in charge of kind of the largest pool of money going to conservative causes across the country and so what my story did was and the way our disclosure laws work for nonprofits in this country because all of these are nonprofits whether 501c3s or 501c4s is that it gives layers of anonymity to the people giving the money and to where the money's going And so what Marble Freedom Trust does, which is controlled by Leonard Leo, who was a longtime leader at the Federalist Society, um, which plays a huge role, especially when Donald Trump was president, in picking and endorsing Supreme Court justices, as well as federal appeals court justices and federal trial court justices. They then put money into two donor-advised funds. Donor-advised funds provide another layer of anonymity. And so how those act is, you say I give 
Say I give $10 million to a donor advised fund. They then distribute it to the places I tell them to distribute it to, but it only shows up as coming from them, not from me, the original source. Um, and so what I found was, you know, you can't confirm that it's the same exact money trickling down, but it all ends up through various layers and very various nonprofits um, ending up at one of the plaintiffs that's in under that umbrella group that brought the lawsuit. And so the reason it's thought that that group was registered in Texas is because that's a trial court, federal trial court judge that's proven to be very hostile to abortion rights. Um, and also the federal appeals court down there is very hostile to abortion rights. And so by bringing, by registering that group, and bringing that lawsuit in this one specific area of Texas, it pretty much ensured that the first you know, time it would be heard in a trial court would be by a very friendly federal judge. Then it will get, get kicked up to another panel that would be very friendly to the cause. Now the case is before the Supreme Court. Um, the appeals court actually said, you know, it's been approved for so long, we can't undo it, but we are going to, you know, we do think that these updates to the law that expanded access or the approval um, need to be revisited. Now, that is supposed to be what the Supreme Court is deciding, but the Supreme Court can do, in theory, whatever it wants, and it could decide to rule on the underlying issue and the reason the case was brought, which was the 2000 approval of Mifepristone. So mm. I'm sure that was hard to follow. Um, so I would, I would encourage people to just look at the story um, because, and you know, it's this is intentional. This is by design that this stuff is very hard to track. Um, right. These are very smart attorneys taking advantage of, you know, what they know and, you know, won't be disclosed and, and what will be um, to kind of, you know, confusion is part of the strategy. Well, we did. We have to have you back to go over this because you you, you talk about some groups that I, I just have never heard of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the Coptic Medical Association of North America. American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. They're all involved in this. Uh, these are all anti-abortion organizations. And Leonard Leo, much of the money he controls is in Marble Freedom Trust, a conservative nonprofit group he was tapped to lead when it was formed by an electronics manufacturing mobile who donated $1.6 So we're talking about an endless supply of money here. And this is so important to follow the money. Uh, one question from a listener before we break. Is there an organization people can donate to to fund getting the pills into women's hands in banned states? Jody? Yes. <laughs> Our website is going up on Monday and we are um, launching an abortion pill sustainability fund. And we are trying to get what we're doing is we're reimbursing doctors for the losses they are incurring in providing pills because these doctors are basically providing pills at $150 a session. In other words, all of the care that goes into it, mailing the pills, getting the pills, their, their insurance, all of that stuff. And they are sometimes getting $0 in payment, which they know they are willing and able to do that, but they can't sustain that forever. So if on Monday you go to healthcareacrossborders.org, Again, healthcareacrossborders.org. There will be a link for you to donate to the Abortion Pill Sustainability Fund, and that fund will help reimburse providers. Just this week, as we've soft-launched the fund, we've reimbursed providers $70,000 for work they've done in December. So we are 
really trying to move this fund forward because unless we are able to help reimburse these providers for the 1,500 to 1,900 abortions they are helping people get every month each, each of them, 15 to 1,900 people a month from banned states, um, they will not be able to continue to do this work. So again, it's healthcareacrossborders.org. Well, we will definitely also do a show about that, Jody. Jody Jacobson is executive director of Healthcare Across Borders, former editor in chief of Rewire.news. Amanda Becker is Washington correspondent for the 19th, an independent nonprofit newsroom reporting on gender politics and policy. Jody and Amanda, thank you so much for your important work and thank you for joining us. Thanks, thank Rose. Thank you. We just got an email from a listener who said, I hardly ever hear about this. Whenever a government tries to regulate or suppress religious practices, it causes great suffering and ultimately never works. Denial of abortion rights is a specific religious cause. Why is America permitting this? Well, Vicki, this is exactly why we do these shows, and we're going to continue doing these shows. And I'm going to be moderating a free online panel about Roe v. Wade Sunday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time. We'll put a link at yourcallradio.org right after the show. Coming up after a break, we will discuss media coverage of the Biden administration's unconditional support for Israel's war on Gaza. We'll be back after this.